Amen. Thank you, choir. It's a bit of a different Sunday morning because the youth guys in the pulpit. So if you were wondering what rock bottom looks like at First Pres, here we are. Okay. I do want to remind you what Meredith just said that taking a nap now is not wise. Okay, before I start preaching, so keep that in mind. It's, a bit, it's even odd for my family who was sitting on the front row. Jay Thomas says, I don't want to sit up here this morning. It's going to be too loud. And I said, son, we're Presbyterians. It's never loud. So, um, But it, is a, it really is a, an awesome privilege to uh, stand before you and preach God's Word. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. And this is arguably uh, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And I'm not going to try to tackle the entire chapter. I'm just going to work with the first couple of verses, but I think it's important for us to see kind of what's going on in this chapter. Uh, At the very beginning, starting in verse 3, Paul gives us a summary of the gospel. And he says, according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared to the apostles and several hundred other people who could bear witness to these things being true. And he moves out of that summary of the gospel into talking about the resurrection of the dead. Specifically, the resurrection of believers. And this is where we get the very well-known quote of Paul, where he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. He ends the chapter talking about the resurrection of the physical body. He wants to make sure that the Corinthians and us as well are clear that this is not some mystical, mysterious, just spiritual resurrection we're talking about, but this is a real physical resurrection. Paul says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This chapter and these truths are central to Christianity. John MacArthur wrote this, the resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. It is the thing that separates us from everyone else, is the hope that we have in this future resurrection. When Christ returns, and we will be transformed, we will be like Him. And so we see Christ's total transformation in His resurrection. That's a foretaste of what is going to happen to us and to all creation. And so this is extremely important. The gospel, the good news of redemption, has a past, a present, and a future. Paul spends most of chapter 15 talking about that future hope of the gospel. But he begins the chapter talking about the totality of, of the gospel, and that's where I want us to focus our attention this morning. He's praying, Paul is, in Ephesians chapter 3, and he says this about the church in relation to the gospel, and this really is my prayer for us this morning. He says he wants the church to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the gospel which surpasses knowledge. And that's, that's what I want for us this morning. I want us to leave in awe of God and His gospel. 
I want us to leave with a heart that's ready to worship, that's ready to engage the lost with this gospel. If your heart is, is, is hopeless, then I want you to leave with hope this morning as we work through these first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read those from the English Standard Version. Now, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, here would be appropriate, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your gospel and the love, the mercy that we see in and through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as we think about this gospel, Lord, would we be struck with your awesomeness. And would we be moved to worship? Would we be moved to greater faithfulness? Would we be moved to fight against sin all the more? Because of what we are given in and through Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, three points for you. Because that's what preachers do. First is, the gospel is anchored in the past. Secondly, the gospel is powerful in the present. And lastly, the gospel is hopeful about the future. So the gospel is anchored in the past. The gospel is powerful in the present. And the gospel is hopeful about the future. The very first thing that Paul does before he launches into this uh, teaching on the resurrection is he's, he reminds the Corinthians that he preached past tense to them and that they received past tense the gospel. Scholars believe that some several months before to maybe up to a year or so before this letter is penned by Paul, he had been in Corinth, he had preached, and they had received his teaching in a transformative way. However, that was not the beginning of the Corinthians' redemption. Their redemption didn't start a few months before this letter or a, a, a few weeks before Paul arrived. Their redemption began before the world was formed. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that God blessed us through Christ when He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So the Corinthians that Paul preached to were chosen before the foundation of the world. Paul writes in Romans 8.30 that those whom God predestined, He called, and those He called, He justified, and those He justified, He glorified. And not only is the end result, their redemption, ordained before the foundation of the world, every moment leading up to their calling on the name of Christ for salvation is ordained, is orchestrated, is put together by God. It's exactly what we're worshiping. That's the worship theme this morning. That God is working all things. He's taking all the pieces of your life, good and bad, and he's, and he's putting those together for His glory and your good. And that is exactly what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. That he came and he preached and they received, but, but that has a root and an anchor in eternity past. 
Paul would write in Romans 10, 14, How will people call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? So before the Corinthians could receive the preaching of Paul, they had to believe. And before they believed, they had to hear. And before they could hear, they had to be preached to. And before Paul could preach to them, he had to be sent by God. Do you see that? That that their salvation is not just a few months in the making, but eternity in the making. That before the foundation of the world, God was orchestrating their redemption. The gospel, the good news of redemption that came to the Corinthians didn't begin with Paul. It began with God. And your redemption and my redemption is no different. That that wonderful, awesome day where you cried out to Christ, and maybe you wrote that date in your Bible, maybe you filled out a card, maybe you were baptized. Your redemption didn't start that day. Your redemption began before Genesis 1-1. Your redemption began before God said, let there be light. Before the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, when Adam and Eve took that first bite of fruit, Jesus was moving toward you and He was moving toward me. Jesus didn't set His face on Calvary when He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus had His face set on the cross in eternity past. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus was on His way to rescue us from ourselves. So why is this important? Why is this encouraging? Because if your salvation was secured before the foundation of the world, it has very little to do with you. Paul writes in Romans 8, 7 and 8, he says, For the mind that's set on flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so... In our flesh, we can't obey God. We can't follow His commands. We can't call out to Him. Our salvation starts with, is initiated by God. That's why Paul writes in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Your redemption, my redemption, is a result of God choosing you, choosing to love you, choosing to give His Son for you, choosing to do whatever it takes to draw you to Himself before the foundation of the world was laid. Your redemption is a result of God opening your eyes to the treasure of the kingdom just like He did for Nicodemus in John 3. Your redemption is the result of God opening your heart like He did for Lydia in Acts 16. Your redemption is the result of God granting you repentance like He did for the Gentiles in Acts 11. It's a result of God taking out your heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh like He promised in Ezekiel 36. And when those those things happen, you'll cry out. You'll follow Jesus. That is the gospel. And it's anchored in eternity past. That's... If you're here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I'd 
I ask you to pray for those things. Ask God to open your eyes to see the treasure of the kingdom, to give you a new heart, to grant you repentance where you can turn from your sin and turn toward Him. But listen, if you're here and you're already a disciple of Christ, you're, if you're a believer, these truths ought to be of great encouragement to you. If your redemption was anchored in eternity past, it wasn't up to you. You didn't have to work hard enough. You didn't do all these things. You didn't do X, Y, Z, and that equaled salvation. There is nothing. If this is true, then there is nothing, nothing that you can do to run Jesus off. There is no sin that's going to scare him away. There is no weakness that's going to cause him to quit and walk away from you. He chose to love you before you breathed air. And He knew in that choosing, before the foundation of the earth, that you would be weak and you would fail and you would struggle. And He says, I choose to love them anyways. And I will do whatever it takes to draw them to Myself. Before time, He's been weaving the tapestry of your life together. The good, the bad the hurtful, the happy, so that you would know Him. That's what Paul's trying to get at when he says, I preached and you received, but it wasn't just a few months in the making, it was eternity in the making. Believer, your salvation is anchored in God and His promises, and it will hold But Paul doesn't stop there. That's the amazing thing. He doesn't just say the gospel is just about things that have happened in the past. Because I think the temptation is, or it would be for me, is just to say, well, if God's handled everything, then I'll do nothing, right? I mean, Jesus has got this. I'll just go home. I'll get on my couch. I'll open a bag of Cheetos. I'll turn on some football. And when Jesus gets back, he can pick me up. All right? Nowhere in the Bible... Is that the proper response to God's sovereignty, His grace, and His mercy? Nowhere. Not with Paul, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not with Jesus. No one. The gospel is active right now in your life. Just like it was ordained in eternity past. Paul says, look, I preached to you, you received it, but this is also the gospel in which you stand now presently. Okay, standing is active. So that's point two. The gospel is powerful in the present. Standing takes some effort. Okay? And the older you get, the more you realize that. All right? Unless you're a dowd, you just pop right up, even if you're like 100. Okay? But for the rest of us, as you grow older, standing becomes more and more of an effort. And that's what Paul is saying is you, in response to this preaching and you receiving the gospel, you've got to stand, you've got to act, you've got to do. Nowhere in Scripture is God's sovereignty a license for apathy. In other words, God's in control of everything, so I do nothing. That's not the proper response. As a matter of fact, James, who wrote a book of the New Testament, says that kind of faith is dead. If you're saying, hey, God did everything, I believe that, but I'm going to do nothing, James says that's dead faith. It's no good. Paul, who we have quoted at nauseum this morning, 
and will continue to do so, who gave us as much information about the sovereignty of God and the salvation process as anyone, this is what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Okay, so he knows God's sovereignty. He, he's the one that wrote the words like chosen and predestined and those sort of things, okay? But this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul does an amazing job in the first 11 chapters of Romans talking about salvation by grace through faith. It's not man's effort. It's not of his own making. It is, it is the Lord's mercy and His grace. But this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 12. In light of all this mercy and grace, Paul says, as he begins Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. So Paul says, in light of all this mercy we've been talking about, the proper response is to do something. And that is to live sacrificially, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Even though our salvation is anchored in the past, it's secure in Christ, that is not a license to be apathetic, to do nothing. Paul says he worked harder than all of them. And at the end of chapter 15 here in Corinthians, Paul urges the church to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain. You know how Paul can know his labor is not in vain because God controls all things. So as you are living your life in your neighborhood, at your job, at your school, interacting with these various peoples, those are not accidents. God has you in those particular places with those particular people for a reason. Labor. In light of the gospel past, label, labor with the gospel present in mind. So how do we do that? How does the gospel motivate us to labor? Well, as you begin to study the truths of the gospel, and you hide them in your heart, and you reflect on Calvary, you reflect on the faithfulness of Christ in the face of persecution, and you remember that it's your sins and my sins that really nailed him to the cross. It wasn't the Romans. It was your sin. It was my sin. And yet he freely laid his life there on the cross. All so that our sins could be forgotten by God. So that God could take those sins and remove them as far from us as the east is from the west and restore that relationship with God our Father. That's the gospel I'm talking about. That has its roots in eternity past. It's going on now. That's the gospel that ought to motivate us. As we believe these truths, it ought to help us to stand. It ought to help us to persevere, to keep going, to share our faith, to endure persecution and hardship. Listen, this is going to sound a little weird, but just hang on to the end of the, the explanation, okay? I don't wash the dishes at our house because I want Katie to love me. I think it helps, okay? But... But that's not why I do it, okay? I'm trying to wash the dishes to communicate to Katie that I already love her. 
And so what Paul is saying and what I'm trying to communicate here is our works are not so God would love me more. Our works and our labor is to communicate to God, thank you. I am an undeserving sinner who has been given everything. If you're saved, you're a co-heir to Christ. You get the kingdom just like Jesus gets the kingdom. And our labor is to say thank you, to show our gratitude and our love and obedience to the Lord. Just being, wanting to be a good person, that really doesn't motivate me very well for a very long period of time. But when I look at the face of Jesus on the cross, and I think about the fact that he left paradise to come endure hardship, had no place to lay his head, and people spit on him, and his best friends just ran away from him right in the darkest hour of his life. And he said, I, I, I'm, I'm hanging in for you and for me. And all of a sudden, I feel a little bit more motivated to go and do. So church, read, read poems about the gospel. Read books about the gospel. Hang up art in your house that reminds you of Jesus and the glorious gospel of God. Keep it in front of you. Sing songs about it. Memorize scripture. But keep it in front of your face so it can be the motivation for you to keep going, to fight sin. It's only the glory of the gospel that will drive out the darkness of your heart. Again, I just want to be a good person. That might work today, but that's not sustainable. Gazing on the beauty of Christ, that's what's going to help you drive out lust and a critical spirit and racism and sexism and apathy. So I don't know what you're enduring right now. It's a pretty sizable crowd. I'm sure there's heartache and there's worry and there's habitual sin and there's marital issues and job issues and depression. And I would just beg you, look into the face of Christ. Remember that your, your salvation is not based on how well your quiet times are going. And you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread and how could Jesus love me? Well, he could love you because he chose to love you before you even existed. And he's not going to forsake you. He's given his life for you. Why would he walk away now? That's the gospel present to motivate you to keep laboring, to keep fighting against sin. And, and if you're here and struggling, I pray and beg you, look at Jesus. Go back and read about his gospel. Fill your ears with music that sing of his wonderful goodness and grace. And if that weren't enough, there's more. So the gospel is not only past and present, there's also future hope in the gospel. The gospel is hopeful about the future. And this is really where Paul spends the bulk of his time in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I'm about to talk about present participles, okay? And I know that's why you got up and got dressed to come to church this morning. 
All right? And if you have any idea what a present participle is, you have either had to teach grammar at some point in your life, or you are a serious nerd. Okay? Um, but this is what Paul says. He says, I, I preached to you, you received this gospel, you're standing in this gospel. And then verse 2 he says, And by this gospel which you are being saved... Present participles show continuous action. Something that's going on now, but will keep on going. In other words, what Paul is saying is this gospel is going to carry you into a future hope. The gospel truly is eternal. A lot of times when I think gospel, I only think of the, the past, like Jesus dying for my sins and me being forgiven. Those are awesome parts of the gospel, but that's not a whole picture of the gospel. The gospel is eternal because the gospel is, is who God is. It comes from His character. It flows out of His heart. It's secured for us by Christ. It's applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Like this gospel and God are so inseparable that, that John Piper actually says God is the gospel. That that is the end result of the gospel is you, you get the Creator. The redemption that's offered in the gospel is redemption that doesn't stop with just a get-out-of-hell-free card. There's more to it than that. Now, that's an awesome benefit to the salvation given to us by Christ. But the ongoing gospel takes us into the new heavens and the new earth. If you are discouraged, if you are hurting, if you are hoping for that day to come, Go home, read Revelation 21 and 22, and rejoice. Because that new Jerusalem is going to come down one day. And you and I are going to be done with sin and sickness and sadness. It's going to be over. That's, that's the hope that we are persevering in. Paul says this kind of weird thing in Romans eight twenty four. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, what Paul is saying is, look, I, I presently, as a, as a Christian, as a transformed old man has gone, new man has come, I, my sins have been forgiven, so I don't have to hope for that. That's a reality. If you're here, believer, listen to me, listen to God's word, you don't have to hope that your sins will be forgiven. They are forgiven. As much as it was a reality that Christ died on the cross, it is a reality right now that your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. So we don't hope for that. It's a reality. You don't have to hope to be adopted by God. It's a reality. You don't hope to one day be declared righteous. It's already happened. You are declared righteous before the Lord. What we're looking forward to, what we're hoping in is that day when sickness and pain and death and sorrow and depression and anxiety and all those awful things that we struggle with day in and day out are over. And we're with Jesus and we're perfect, and it's peaceful, and it's paradise. 
That's the hope. That's the you are being saved. This is the gospel's at work, but it's going to carry you into that age. So what do we do in the meantime? If if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to be perfected. What do we do? Well, we prepare for that perfection. Just like uh, a football team would be preparing for a championship game. They're going to practice as if they were at the championship game. They're not going to go through the motions. They want to practice like it's the day of. We should be no different. If you know that the climax of your salvation is a perfected you with Jesus forever, then you prepare for that day by saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, to doing whatever it takes to kill sin and to follow Christ more closely. That's how we prepare for that future hope. That's how the gospel motivates us as we, again, look in the eyes of Christ and we we fight against those sins that so easily entangle us. We will experience total, ultimate, complete redemption one day. That's the story of the gospel. Past, present, and future. It's beautiful. It's hard to wrap our minds around the totality of it. Because, especially the future part, this is going to be like nothing we've ever seen. Uh, We get a little taste of it when we see Christ resurrected. Like that's That's a foretaste of what's going to happen not only to us but to all creation. Totally transformed. The gospel, your redemption is anchored in the past so you can rest in Christ. The gospel is powerfully at work in the present so you can be actively laboring for the kingdom and be motivated to continue to persevere in good works. The gospel is hopeful about the future so you prepare for your perfection by fighting sin, becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul ends verse 2 by saying, That if the gospel's really been effective, if it's really gripped your heart, if you've really been transformed by it, then it's not just words, it's not just lip service, it's not just something that's in your head, but there, there are actions that follow. Particularly, Paul says, you'll hold fast to the word that I preach to you. In other words, you'll believe this Bible. And you'll obey it and you'll follow it. This will be the blueprint for your life. This will be the instructions for the way that you will live and interact with people. You'll hunger and thirst for righteousness. You'll love to love God. That's what Paul's saying. That if it's real, that's, that's the fruit that marks true belief. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit. Not that we're sinless. Okay, but the pattern of your life will be one of Pursuing Christ. You'll grow, you'll, you'll see more of your sin and you'll run to Christ. You'll apply the gospel more and more to your life. You'll be motivated by it. I love what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.14. He said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And if there's ever been a better application 
of that uh, statement by Solomon, then your salvation, I don't know it. Your salvation endures forever because it is something that God has done, not something you've figured out. You can't add anything to it with your good works. You can't take anything from it by your sinful habits. God has done it. How do you respond? You worship Him. You have reverent fear for Him. Church, chew on the truths of the gospel, past, present, and future. And it really is my prayer that with Paul prayed in Ephesians that we would all know the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the gospel in a way that really would leave us in awe of him. He loves you that much. Don't forget that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the fact, the truth that our salvation was anchored in eternity past because it's anchored in you, Father. Thank you that right now, your, your gospel truth by, through the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us to motivate us to labor, to fight sin. And Lord, we are thankful that we have a hope that one day, as your gospel continues to work in us, it will carry us home to be with you, perfected. God, will you help us be encouraged by these truths? And if there's someone here who doesn't know you, may, may the truth of your gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, draw them to you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.